Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. We also have Jason Moser in the studio today. Hello. Hello. Not as always, but very thrilled to be here, so thanks for having me. And we are equally thrilled to have you here. We are thrilled to have you here. I'm a little bit more thrilled to be here. (laughs) Let's not make it a competition. I'm I'm feeling rather thrilled right now. Mm -hmm. Good night, everybody. That's the show. <laughs> I can't take it. I can't take you guys anywhere. In light of the recent IPO Snapchat, we're going to explain the ins and outs of the IPO process and answer all of the questions you're too embarrassed to ask, such as, "What is Snapchat anyway?" <laughs> we'll also answer the question you weren't afraid to ask about how to invest your midterm money when you think the market is due for a correction. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's time for our answers, answers, and today's question comes from Logan. Logan writes. I am saving to buy a house in five to six years. With the market at an all-time high and the risk that comes with a shorter time horizon for needing the funds, I'm not sure how to strategize my investments. Would you recommend dollar cost averaging into a commission-free ETF, such as Vanguard's VOO, invest in large-cap dividend stocks when they look cheap, or stay out of the market altogether, or other? Keep up the great work, as always. Thanks, Logan. Well, Logan, this is a bit of a tough one, because we tell people, if you need money in the next few years, keep it out of the market. Long-term money, market's fine, but you're kind of in that middle range of five to six years. So let's first take a look at history. So if you look at five-year holding periods, according to Ibbotson Associates since 1926, large-cap stocks make money 86% of the time. So the odds are pretty good that if you have money in the market for five years, you're going to make money. But what will happen if, unfortunately, your five-year period is Ugh, that a, time when a it bad doesn't five years. exactly? And if you look at the history of bear markets, on average, it takes about three years for the market to go down, then come back up again. But that's the average. There have been times when it's taken seven years or longer. So the question I would say, first of all, for you is, what would happen to your plans if the market does go down? Will you be crushed, or will you be okay putting that house purchase off another year or two um, and adjust it that way? I also took a little look at. Um, what age-based 529 accounts do, because what those do, those are college savings accounts, and they're age-based, which means they get a little bit more conservative as a kid gets older and closer to college. And that, well, what do most of the big service firms say, like in terms of your near-term money like this, around five years? And I found a very wide disparity. So, if, like if you look at Vanguard's age-based funds, if your kid is like 13, meaning they'll go to college in about five years, they have no money in the stock market. If you look at T. Rowe Price, if your kid's about 13, about 45% of it is in the stock market. I think that's actually probably a good general guideline. So you don't have to do it all one way or the other. You can have it a little bit in the stock market, a little bit in cash. I wouldn't do bonds at this point. But then as you get closer to the house purchase, you really want to have most of it or all of it in cash. Yeah, I think just coming from the perspective of a homeowner having gone through the process of buying and selling homes before in the last twenty four <laughs> hours, we are shuffling some real estate around right now. By the um, way, Jason and I are almost neighbors, but we'll t- that's a whole other topic. Yeah, I can't wait. We'll, we'll <laughs> we should, we should do some so on location uh, tapings. Um, I, <laughs> Saturday I think, morning in the pajamas. <laughs> um, I, it's re- it's really difficult to. Look at a five-year stretch and say I shouldn't put that money in the market. The flip side to that is, 
like you were saying, bro, you can never really be sure. You may hit a point where the market does dip, and particularly today, where you feel like maybe the market is at pretty frothy valuations. It's obviously very volatile, uh, given sort of the the political climate today. And it's it's all a matter of weighing really what is more important to you at this point. I mean, I think the high priority is buying the house at some point, and ultimately, whether it's stocks or real estate or whatever, you never want to you never want to be stuck being a desperate seller. In other words, having to sell something for a loss in order to get your money. And so, if you if you look at the potential returns that you could gain over the course of five years, I don't know that that the return there is attractive enough to warrant putting. Any really of that money in the market? I mean, it's okay, I guess, if you want to perhaps put a small bit into it. But even then, I don't know that the returns really outweigh the risk of losing that capital when you're looking at something as as pivotal as as really life changing as buying a home. I think with buying a home, you need that money, and I think that you also need the security of knowing that that money is going to be there for you when you want it. And in five years is is a long time. Your plans may change. The the situation may change. All of a sudden, you you think, hey, maybe we can buy this house in three years or two years, or maybe we need six or seven years. So it, it's nice to look at five years, but then you have to also recognize the fact that plans can and typically do change over the course of time too. Yeah, I'm preparing an article that is looking at the. Predictions of various Wall Street firms of where stocks will be five, ten years from now, and certainly based on current valuations, nobody is is expecting average or above average returns from the stock market. Most people are predicting single digit returns. So you have to wonder, like, is that even worth taking the risk? I'd say personally, when we were saving to buy our first home, I mean, that money all went into a savings account. We did not invest any of that money whatsoever. The return was the liquidity, having the availability when we wanted it. Uh, and I think that's it's going to be probably a little bit different for everybody, but but I can tell you from our experience, it was always just straight into a savings account. Yeah, so it's all right, Logan. It's up to you and how much risk you can handle. But it sounds like we got a little bit of a split decision. Yeah, yeah. But Agreed regardless, hope you enjoy the house. Yeah, because you will get it one day. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, Logan, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. Skip the line, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Jason Moser for joining us today and to come in and help break down the topic of IPOs and all this Snapchattiness and all the millennials with their picture sharing and their spectacles and I don't I don't even know. Back in my day, <laughs> Snapchat was a Polaroid picture. You cut it out and glued it to paper. That's true. It's true. Yeah. I feel like we just dated Polaroid. ourselves, but that's all right. <laughs> Well, there's this funny there's this funny quote from Douglas Adams. I'm going to share it because I think it applies here. Author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This comes from Salmon of Doubt. He says, oh. I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reactions to technologies. Anything that was in the world when you were born is normal, ordinary, and just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented when you're between 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. Anything invented after you th- were 35 is against the natural order of things. And that's <laughs> totally Snapchat for me. I understand Facebook. I understand Twitter. I, under- I even understood Friendster when Friendster was a thing. 
But Snapchat, I'm just like, I don't know. See, I'd say I get it. I mean, I understand it. I mean, I'll preface this by saying I don't use it, but I do get it. I mean, it is a it's a niche sort of platform, and we'll get into that. But it serves a purpose for younger folks. I mean, I think that the demographics are typically 15 to you know 27, 28, maybe 30. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 a glorified messaging app, right? It's a robust sort of messaging app. So, I mean, from that perspective, I I do get it. I just I think. Uh, you, you, right, hit on, whatever, you hit on Jason, a big you're question. Cool. You're the why? coolest guy in the room. We you, get it. you hit on you the right it. question though. Why would we use it? And and I that's that's my big question for them is like once you hit a certain point in your life, you said this before taping. You don't even have anybody to snap. I don't. Neither do I. I don't either. I mean, I could, we don't let our daughters use it. They're ten and twelve, and we we won't allow them to use it. Uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't use it in the first place because I don't know who I would use it with. Oh, I know. I know. I'm all alone in Snapchat, being no like, "Hey friends. guys, check out! Look, I look like a dog. <laughs> look at me. Look at my doggy." I first heard about Snapchat. Oh gosh, Ton- many years ago from Katrina. Do you remember Katrina? She's oh, yeah. in charge of social media. Um, and we were riding the elevator together, and she got off the elevator, and I was like, "Oh hey!" And I was trying to like say something to her, and she's like, "Sorry, just a moment." And she's like, "Oh, I missed a snap from my husband," and I was like, "What are you talking about?" So basically, fast forward. I don't know. Five years, and I actually finally started using it. So, for those who do not use Snap, we'll do a brief explanation of what it is. Uh, basically, it's an app on your phone, and you can take pictures or really, really short videos and send them to your friends or just send them out broadly to the world. If you send it to your friends, it disappears after they watch it, essentially. Um, and if you send it out to the world, it what disappears within like 24 hours. As we all know, nothing ever really yes. disappears the internet, online. The internet is forever, folks. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and the millennials love it. Oh, you want to hear some crazy stats? Yes. You ready for this? I do. Okay, so they have about 161 million daily users. In, according to in Q4 of 2016, users visit on average about 18 times a day. Hmm. Um, so this is crazy. Snap says it reaches 41 percent of 18 to 34 year olds in the U.S. every day. Wow! How crazy is that? That is crazy. It's a lot. The kids these days. The kids these days. <laughs> kids these Shouldn't days they be doing their, their homework? Their snaps and their and their whatever. So anyway, basically the idea is it's a messaging app. And we are old people who don't use but, it. And you can do different filters and take funny, funny pictures and, and stuff like that. It'll make you look like, like, a, like a, a fairy princess with a flower garland in your hair. And <laughs> I don't need an app for that. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. The filters are really fun to play with, but I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with them. So I, that's. I mean, I think you've you've hit the real question though: is the purpose that it serves? I mean, we look at these businesses that have gone public before Snapchat and or Snap rather, and so LinkedIn. We know that was the purpose is to be the professional network of choice. Facebook. We know the purpose is to connect people. Twitter is this live platform that that offers this sort of uh, instant communication uh, around the world. And and I think Snapchat, for the most part, it, it, its purpose it's it's a way to communicate with your friends, and, and I think that's fine. But I think you have to look at that and and start to think, okay, what is the opportunity there for growth, and and how do they monetize that? Because that's not so easily done. And if you look at Facebook as a good example here of. At some point down the line, they broke off the Messenger portion of Facebook into its own app, and Messenger is just another way for you to communicate with your friends directly. 
Facebook is even recognizing that monetizing that is not so easy. WhatsApp, they bought for $20 billion. Monetizing that is not so easy. Mm-hmm. Because when you're communicating with your friends, if, I, if I'm texting you, I mean, I don't want that riddled with advertisements. So, again, they need to become something a little bit more than just sort of a two-way form of communication uh, from one person to another. In, in you know, they're, they're making uh, headway there. I mean, I think they are coming up with some ideas and ways to work with media companies out there to, to get more content uh, to a broader audience. Uh, but again, I'm not so sure that it reaches beyond the core audience user. In other words, if I don't have the Snapchat app on my phone and I don't use it, I'm probably not exposed to much, if any, of that content at all. And, and that, I think, could pose a problem for them down the line, unless yeah. they have a solution. They also, I think, admitted in their filings that predominantly the users were you know, 18, that 18 to 34 demographic, and yeah. they kind of are fickle when it comes to technology and are always hopping on the, the new thing, and that that was a potential risk. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it seems certainly <laughs> disruptable. And I mean, that was why when Facebook went public, it was so attractive because it has such a massive user base, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can write all of these headlines and they're like, oh, people are defecting from Facebook. It's not cool now because that's where all the parents are. I mean, that may be the case in, in, in to, to some extent, but the fact is that there are more than a billion people well, yeah, on this earth that are using billion, it every day. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that when you look at these other platforms, that's this massive advantage that Facebook had on all of them, was this huge established user base from the very beginning. And I think Facebook's strategy, generally, um, is proving to be the right one in being a collection of apps as opposed to just one. So, you have Facebook, you have Messenger, you have Instagram, you have WhatsApp. And and you can see Twitter trying to go in that direction with uh, Twitter and Periscope and whatever else they, they intend to buy. I think it makes sense for Snap to at least consider that as a possibility in, in becoming more than just Snapchat. Perhaps there's another um, app or two or three that they could bring under their uh, under their umbrella, so to speak. And so then that sort of leads to the question of how attractive is that management team uh, to work with? I mean, do people want to go be a part of that family? And and that's the jury's still out. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the whole IPO process and um, deconstruct it here and walk walk us through it. So first off. Why does a company IPO, which of course stands for Initial Public Offering? Yeah, generally speaking, it's to raise capital. I mean, this is a chance for them to raise capital in order to grow the business. And when you're looking at businesses who are uh, taking a longer view, 5, 10, 20 years, they want to be around for a while, going public helps them raise that capital. It'll help them attract talent, help them grow the business, gives them access to cheaper capital as they continue to grow. So, generally speaking, you know, it's 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 a money grab. So lately, a lot of the headlines have been that there have not been a lot of high-profile IPOs lately, and the companies are waiting longer to go public. Uh, like there's a lot of pent up pent up demand for Snapchat to go public because people wanted to jump in there. Uh, why why is that? Why are companies waiting longer to go public? Well, I think oftentimes businesses need a better track record in order to go public and be taken seriously. Uh, and I think I think the Snap IPO here recently sort of uh, tell, tells a little bit to that story in that Snap, an interesting business, interesting sort of platform there with Snapchat, uh, but but clearly not a proven business by any means, and and not a business with very much of a track record either. And so, I mean, there was on the one side the financial media really pumping the story up because there was sort of this 
perceived pent-up demand for an IPO. And on the other side of it, uh, investors like us, uh, retail investors, we're sort of business-focused investors, are looking at this and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that people really need to be so eager for this thing to go public right now, because you kind of like to get into these companies when there's a bit more of a proven business model and there's a bit more uh, of a track record established. And Snap, unfortunately, at this point, doesn't have that. Um, I think that the longer you wait, the more experience your management team gets, and when we have good leadership, good management, um, they can do a lot of great things with with uh, the businesses that they're uh, running. And there are also more ways to get capital as a, as a young business now. There are so many more ways through private equity and venture capital and things like that. You just you can wait longer to go into the publicly traded markets before you need that. And 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 to some degree, that's one of the reasons some of these companies actually end up coming public because you have these. The venture capitalists, the people who got in early, they got in early because they want to get out at some point mm-hmm. and make a lot of money. So some of these companies are actually forced to go public because the early investors are like, I want at some point to be able to cash in. Mm-hmm. And an IPO is way, one way to do that. And we'll look at IPOs very often, and you read through the uh, the SEC filings there, and they'll state in those filings uh, the, the use of the proceeds from the IPO. Now, a lot of times, the use of the proceeds is to grow the business. Sometimes you will see this in that the use of the proceeds is to pay down debt mm-hmm. or pay off early investors in the business. And so you have to look you have to look at that and say, well, if this isn't money that's being used to actually grow the business, if this is money that's just paying down debt, I'm not sure that's such an attractive proposition right now because you're not really doing anything productive with that money. You're not reinvesting that capital, so to speak. Uh, and, and we've seen plenty of stories where companies IPO in order to pay down debt or, or pay out shareholders, uh, and, and then the underlying business uh, didn't really have a whole heck of a lot going for it, and, and the stock price can can suffer over time. Is that because venture capital funds were ready to cash out that they're forced to do that usually? Yeah, that a lot of times they can, yeah. they can sort of. Make that call, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's not really much of a choice. Yeah, let's pretend that South South Camp Industries, a purveyor of fine leather clogs, loofahs, and whiskey. What else do we make? I forget. I don't know. S'mores. But the possibilities are endless. <laughs> really? That's, all I that's, say. Why, that's why we want to IPO. <laughs> so, all right, let's pretend South Camp Industries wants to IPO. We decide we're going to go public. What do, What do we do? What's our first step? Well, I mean, you need to make sure you have your your house in order. In in other words, if you're going to go public, (laughs) if you're going to go public, you need to understand that you're going to be under a microscope, and that virtually every stone is going to be uh, turned over. And so, make sure that you have no uh, skeletons in the closet, so to speak, and everything. You're you're okay with everything that's going on in the business right now, because when you decide to go public, all of that stuff is going to be discoverable. Um, But then you you latch onto an investment bank, you go on a roadshow where you sort of go around pitching. Your story to these investment banks and these institutional investors to give them sort of the the, the history of your company, why you're going public, and, and the opportunity uh, that 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 they could uh, partake in, and and from there, uh, your investment bank or your syndicate of banks then uh, do the underwriting to go ahead and take the company public. They have the IPO and. You know, once that once that launches, then the shares are trading on the open market. The company raises the capital from that IPO, and then once those shares are, are on the open market, I mean, those shares are just traded between investors as as they normally do today. So then, so all right, South Camp Industries, we go on our roadshow and our underwrite. Like this, the, the IPO, from what I understand of an IPO, it is not individual investor friendly. It is no. It is not at all in in the. It's not. It's not for us. It's going to be very difficult for us to get involved with that because we are just individual retail investors. Now there will be 
points in time where the the institutions uh, may strike agreements with any given brokerage, where a brokerage can say, hey, we're, we have this allotment of shares that we can make available to our top account holders. And that's so, happens, they'll, yeah. they'll offer, you know, say, say, you know, Robert Brokamp here has uh, $10 million in, in his uh, Scott Trade account. And Scott Trade says, hey, you, you're one of our bigger account holders, and we know there's this IPO coming up, and, and we have this allotment of shares. Are you interested in, in partaking in this IPO? And so, then Bro can say, well, sure I am, or, or no, I'm, I'm okay, I'll wait. Um, but yeah, from there, Typically, retail investors are going to have to wait for those things to actually be available in the public market. They start trading. The NYSE right. or the Nasdaq. And so, like with yeah. Snap, for example, you saw the pricing of the iPod, I think it was somewhere around $17. Mm-hmm. But once those shares were available and trading on the open market, I think they, they opened at $24. So, you can see there's a big a big gap just right there alone, and based on sort of the price movement that we've seen to this point, I mean, that $24 entry point is not looking so attractive right now. Right. So, how do you define the success of an IPO? Because that's what people love to talk about. As soon as a company is IPO, they're like, is it successful? Because I think success is different depending on whether you're the company. How you define success is different whether you're South Camp Industries versus you're the underwriter versus your Scott Trade, who bought some shares and was waiting to see that pop so they could then unload it onto retail investors. So, if you're South Camp Industries, what are we looking for in a successful IPO? Well, you don't want any drama. Uh, for example, like when Facebook went public, and I think the Nasdaq was not fully prepared to be able to handle that volume, and so there were some issues back and forth with uh, just the the availability and trading of shares. Uh, but if you're the company, generally speaking, you want a nice smooth process. You want an effective pricing for your stock. In other words, when you go public, it's it's one. If you see that big pop or the stock goes 75 percent higher, that's not that great if you're the company because you're sitting there thinking, "Man, that's money we we left on the table." Um, so generally speaking, you like to see sort of an efficient pricing there. You like to see no drama really, um, and then you you like to be able to sort of see a generally uh, Positive reception uh, for your stock on the open market. So when you have a lot of these institutional investors, they're going to issue their calls, whether it's a buy, sell, a hold, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, you'd like to see a lot of those, a lot of those calls as, as buy that that you know would would communicate the the opinion that they have a favorable uh, view on your on your shares. All right, and then for the institutional investors, for the so for the the guys who got to get in early and get the actual initial public offering, institutional investors. The underwriter. What's successful for them? What would be a successful um, I mean, IPO? generally speaking, again, it's going to be effective pricing because uh, the banks that are doing the underwriting are going to get a cut off of that uh, off of that IPO, so to speak, and so they they want to make sure they do you know see some effective pricing there, and then from there, uh, I think that's at the end of the day, they just want to get paid. Right, and then the institutional investors who like the Scott Trade who sold the shares to to Brocamp. Which now we're getting all kinds of conflict of interest here with South Camp Industries, but whatever, we'll ignore that for now. <laughs> he wants to see he wants to see that stock pop as soon as it hits the secondary market. Well, that depends. Right? I mean, if if he's, he's looking to trade, the, if he's looking to trade the shares, then yeah, I mean, you probably aren't looking at a very long term horizon there. And uh, if he is able to get get those shares at seventeen and sees them pop to twenty four, twenty five dollars in the first day of trading. He's probably looking at that and thinking, "Hey, maybe this was an effective IPO, and I could sell my shares and make a little money there." But then you bring into uh, the mix tax implications and mm-hmm. all other all other sorts of fun things. So, um, again, that that the the investing that we espouse here, uh, much more business focused, much more uh, yeah, we take obviously longer uh, time horizon there. Um, so, and, and, and some IPOs the the stocks close the day lower, like mm-hmm. Vonage, sure. which. 
IPO way back in I think 2006 was down something like 14% in its first day. That does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, from the company standpoint, that might have been great, right? Because that yeah. actually raised a lot of capital. Um, but for the people who were thinking they're getting in at the ground floor, that's a little disappointing. So, should a long-term investor ever invest in an IPO? I don't like or, to say never, well, uh, but generally speaking, more often than not, it pays to be patient. I think, uh, generally speaking, we like to be able to at least watch these businesses perform, watch them establish a track record, maybe give it a couple of quarters to understand how they're reporting their quarters, what metrics they're using to measure their success, are those the right metrics. Um, looking at the valuation of the stock, I mean, price always matters, and, and I just I can't I can't stress that enough. And, and again, I, I use this Snap IPO as an example because Snap can absolutely be a successful business. There's no question there. I mean, there's a business there. It, 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 but when you look at the way the share price is trading right now versus the money that the company brings in, I mean, it's not profitable by a mile. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and the share price today is still baking in a phenomenal amount of success. And so I think that anytime anybody's considering an IPO, have an understanding of what the business does, how it brings in money, and how that valuation is translating to the to the current share price, because price always matters. I actually Googled that before we started the show. I was like, how does Snapchat make money? Question mark. That's exactly what I typed into Google. <laughs> what was the answer? Uh well, I mean, Jason probably knows better than I do, but they have a they they sell their spectacles, which I don't think is a huge money right. amount of money, but basically ad, I mean, ad revenue and partners. It's an it's so, an advertising business yeah. right now. It's a media platform. And I mean, I think one of the things that caught a lot of our eyes was when Snapchat renamed itself Snap mm-hmm. and re-identified itself as a camera company. Now, Typically, when we look at camera companies, hardware companies like that, those are not the most attractive investments because device companies are typically kind of a race to the bottom. You're just trying to to sell sort of a, a, a cheap device. They become commoditized over time. So you have to wonder. I mean, with that sort of self awareness there, that maybe they even know that just being the Snapchat app alone isn't going to cut it. Right. They need to be something more. I think that's. I think that's something that they realize there. I'm not sure that being a camera company is necessarily the right answer. I mean, time will tell there. Um, but but I think that's definitely a, a recognition on their part that in order to be a business that meets these lofty expectations that the market is, is communicating today, uh, they're going to have to be become something much more than just a niche app that has what appears to be a limited user base. Jason, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I should probably say a, like a little disclaimer. Should we have should we have a disclaimer? Sure, why not? The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about here. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what comes out of Jason Moser's mouth or mine <laughs> or bros. Do your own research. It's fun sometimes. Discounted cash flow models. Woof. <laughs> I want to thank Pam for sending in a postcard from Pearl Harbor. She writes, wow. I vote you to drop the retirement community story and just say that Luffy is fool spelled backwards. Which Whoa. I know. I never realized Whoa. That. Love your show. Pam. Pam, thank you for the suggestion. Wow. I love all the postcards you guys get. Thanks. It is Isn't just it phenomenal to me. I just uh, it's it's just it's great. Some have gotten lost in the mail. I feel really bad because people will email and say, Did you get my postcard from 
Guam, Fiji, I don't know, from places, and, and I haven't gotten them, so I feel really bad on the ones that have gotten lost in the mail. Well, what can you do? Well, Snap it to us. No, wait, that doesn't work. We're not there. We're not on Snap. Yeah, it'll disappear too quickly. That's true. All right, the show is edited fleetingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp and Jason Moser, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.